You know, when P. Joey asks me to come out and speak to you, I get really excited because I love speaking to you guys specifically because I know what you expect, right? Like, I'll go to other youth ministries around the state and I will speak at other youth retreats and I have to take a little bit of time allowing the students to get to know me before I go in on them a little bit. But I don't have to do that here because I know who your pastor is. And I know you like your preaching like you like your driving. Aggressive. <laughs> and so I just want to let you guys know that tonight and throughout this entire retreat, I'm just going to be telling you the truth that is found in God's good word. And I just don't want to beat around the bush too much because, listen, I'm 40 years old. My cholesterol's high. I'm, like, getting gray hair. I'm, like, running out of time. You know what I'm saying? And I I just, I I don't know if you know this, but, like, I just have a sense of urgency in my heart right now because if you look around the world today, It needs Jesus. I love Chicago. I pray for Chicago. And you know, I've lived outside of Chicago now longer than I've lived in Chicago in the beginning of my life. But it's still my hometown. And I look back on Chicago and I, and I pray over it with desperation. And I love this city. But it is a city that desperately needs Jesus. And in like, I look at you, the students who live in Chicago, the ones who walk the streets and who go to the schools, the ones who are hearing a million different voices from a million different cultures, from a million different ideologies. You are hearing a hundred thousand opinions and Most of them are false. You are a generation that is being indoctrinated. You are a generation that is being pulled at. You are a generation that is being fought for fiercely by the devil. And I see an attack that is specifically taking place in Chicago. I feel like the attack is hardest on Chicago before it hits the rest of Illinois or even the Midwest. I believe that Chicago exists as a stronghold for the enemy in the Midwest. We see that culturally how Chicago goes, so goes the rest of the Midwest. I believe that there are cultural places in our nation that determine how the rest of that region goes. You have L.A. and Hollywood. You've got Houston in the south and Austin and Dallas. You've got New York in the northeast. You've got Orlando and Atlanta and Miami in the southeast. But in the Midwest, it's Chicago. I watch as you guys create tipping points for the rest of the state. I I, I will say this to you, but I will not say this to any other youth ministry in the rest of the state because they'll get all offended by it. And if you say I said it, I'll call you out on it. This is going to be between me and you. I literally say this. How Chicago goes, so Illinois goes. 
And so I have some expectations tonight. My first expectation is for you to know the theme of this weekend so that you can just be with me the whole time that I'm preaching. The theme for this weekend is this. If you know, you know. Tonight, we're going to talk about the gospel. I want to preach the gospel to you, and I'm going to do it in a fresh way so that you guys understand I'm going to be a teacher preacher, not a preacher teacher tonight. I want to teach you the gospel. Why? Because your generation is the most gospel illiterate generation that has walked the earth since the Bible has been printed. You will listen to influencers. You will listen to creation. But you are not listening to the creator anymore. And you wonder why things are being destroyed all around you. Uh, It is important for me for you to know the gospel. Because if you know, you know. If you know the gospel, you know freedom. If you know the gospel, you know your purpose. If you know the gospel, you know your value. And you understand your worth. If you know the gospel, you know your identity. you know, you know. Tomorrow in the morning, we're going to be talking about the presence of God. Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to talk about fighting for the presence of God God in your life. We're going to be in the book of Job. Because if you know God's presence, you know joy. No matter what your circumstances are dictating to you. Happiness is based on happenings, but the joy of the Lord transcends it. God doesn't want you to be happy, but he does want you to have joy. And that can only come from his presence. If you know presence, you know power. You cannot be a person of the power of God unless you are a young person of the presence of God. So tomorrow, if you know, you know. If you know presence, you know power. And then tomorrow night, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And it's going to be a tough message. And it's going to address some of the anger issues that exist in this room. I grew up angry. And the root of that anger was unforgiveness. And I'm going to teach you a deep and theologically rich message on forgiveness so that you can be prepared to confront the foolishness and the cancel culture that exists in this world today. And then, finally, we're going to talk about our mission. Because if you know the heart of God, you know your mission. If you know, you know. Turn to your neighbor and say, if you know, you know. It's going to be the theme of this week. Is it okay for me to just, is it okay for me to just preach some truth to you this weekend? So here are my expectations. I want to define some terms. First of all, let's talk about the term Christian. When I say Christian, I am talking about a follower of Christ, not just a believer. The Bible says that even the demons believe and tremble. You can be a believer and be no better off than a demon. I'm asking tonight if you are a follower of Christ. No matter what. No matter what culture says, no matter how hard you are being pushed against, no matter what direction anybody else is walking, a Christian is a follower of Christ. I will go where you go, Jesus. I will do what you say to do, Jesus. 
An expectation is for you to take notes as I speak. Not in response to me, but in response to God. I want you to worship with your minds. I am going to be preaching big truths that you can grow into, not small ideas that you can walk away from. If you are in here tonight, I want you to worship with your minds. If there is something that you didn't get, I am not going to pander to you. I am going to challenge you and say, wrestle with it. Go to a leader and say, I don't understand what Pastor Chris meant when he said this. This is called the pursuit of discipleship and mentorship in your life. Now listen, I'm going to speak. I'm not going to be up here like C.S. Lewis with using some iambic pentameter, like trying to wax eloquent to you guys, speaking in the King James, okay? We're going to break things down in easy truth. I ain't trying to put anybody to sleep in this place. But there's going to be rich truth that I'm teaching you. There's some of you that are going to be there because you are older, more mature Christians. And there are some of you who are like, man, I'm going to wrestle with that a little bit. And it's all okay. That's what I'm saying. It's all okay. Don't check out because you don't understand. Check in. Lean in more. All right. Finally, I want you to respond to the altars tonight. No matter where you believe your relationship with Jesus Christ is, the altar is a place you always check in. Because none of you are perfect. Students, the altar is a place of sacrifice. When I say come to the altar, I am asking you to come forward symbolically up to the front or turn around in your chairs and kneel down. And I want you to sacrifice whatever the Lord is asking you to sacrifice in that moment so that you can gain a better relationship with him. The altar is a place that we go to to say, God, I am giving you control. And leaders, the students aren't the only ones who should be responding to the altars. I think the reason that we see so many students staring at preachers when they call for the altar is because we have so many leaders that are staring at the preacher when they call for the altar. We need a generation of discipleship. It's okay. Listen, we are not trying to show the next generation perfect Christians. We are trying to show the next generation pursuing Christians. I'm not trying to show my children a perfect father. It's not my job to be always right. It's God's job to be always right. It's my job to point to God and say, I'm a broken man, but I'm going to pursue Christ in everything. So leaders, if something hits you, show the students what it's like to weep in front of God before you do business with them. Because I don't want broken leaders pouring into broken students. Okay, okay, let, let, me, let me just be careful with that last statement because some of you are like, well, we're all broken. Yeah, I know that, but go to the altar first and let God do some healing on you before you turn around and do business with a student. Amen? Okay, just wanted to clarify that real quick. Tonight, what I just want to do is present the gospel to you. The gospel means the good news. Somebody say, good news. The gospel is such good news. It is such good news. And I want to present the gospel so that you can be gospel literate. The Bible says in the book of Hosea that my people perish for a lack of knowledge. There's just a lack of knowledge. There's a lack of biblical literacy. There's a lack of good theology that exists 
and our churches today, they say statistically that 92% of kids who say that they are Christians in your generation read their Bible less than once a month. And usually that's only when they're at like church or a youth service. So you're not even reading it on your own. I just want to know, like, where are you getting your information? Who, who is telling you how to live? Who is telling you what truth is? Where are you getting it from? Like the media? <sighs> oh, please don't. Like none of them. I, I, conservative, liberal, blah, blah, they're all liars. They all have an agenda, like, like, like every last one of them. Who, who, who's telling you? Influencers on social media? I, I've heard some of them. It's clown town out there. I don't know what, like, they, some of the stuff they are saying is some of the most asinine stuff I've ever heard in my life. It isn't. Asinine is not a swear word. It means stupid. It's okay. Some of y'all are going to go home and be like, that's asinine. <laughs> like, <laughs> asinine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Some of y'all are going to go home and you're going to use that word all the time. It's okay. It's a good word. It's fine. It's, you know, I'll teach you some more by the time this is done. It's good. <laughs> Not all of them will have like a hidden cuss word in it or something. Yeah, I know. Y'all take your notes. You're like writing that down big letters. <laughs> I love, like, I heard an influencer the other day saying, like, hey, we just need to love each other and accept everybody because love is love. What? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Love is love? You cannot use a word to describe itself. You want to know why that's really dangerous? Because if you say love is love, then you can make love anything you want it to be. And then now all of a sudden, something that you were using love is love to justify is now being used to justify something you don't like. We can just take it anywhere we want to. No, actually, the Bible says that God is love, and, and there's actually some objective definitions of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrong. Like the Bible actually tells you all over the place what love actually is. So you don't have to say something stupid like, love is love. Just because it feels good. I want to talk to you guys tonight, though, about the gospel. Father, tonight I just pray that you would open up our ears. Holy Spirit, would you just do a work in the hearts and in the lives of these students Not my words, but your words, God. We are desperate for you in this place. God, there are legacies in this room that are on the line. I am not preaching to students. I am preaching to futures. I am preaching to families. Holy Spirit, would you just do a work? Because, like, I can't do this on my own. I'm not that gifted. I'm not that smart. But, Father God, you say that where I am weak, you are strong. So, Father God, less of me and more of you. Oh, God, would you just pour yourself out in this place tonight? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The goal by the end of my time with you 
is to either teach you the good news or remind you of it. I want us to consider three questions moving forward tonight. Do you know the gospel? Has it changed your life? And does it motivate you in any way, shape, or form to change the lives of others around you? Do you know the gospel? Has it changed you? And does it motivate you? Do you know the gospel? In other words, do you have a proper understanding of why Jesus came to earth? Do you understand the transaction that took place when Jesus died on the cross? Do you understand the implications of his resurrection as far as it concerns your eternal soul? And do you know why this is such good news for you personally? Has the gospel changed you? In other words, what's your testimony? I once was a slave to sin. I once was a slave to addiction. I once was a slave to image and self-righteousness. I once was a slave to comfort and my reputation. Then I encountered Jesus. And I found out about how much he loves me and how much he wants me to live. And it's changed everything. And then finally, has the gospel motivated you? Are you being compelled by the stunning love of Jesus Christ to reach the lost all around you? In your family, in your communities, in your schools, and yes, even in your church. Have you been compelled by the stunning love of Jesus Christ to endure hardship, to shift your priorities around, to shed sin, to bind up the broken, to give extravagantly of your time and your resources and your money to see that other people are reached? You know, when I was a youth pastor, I always used to ask our students, I I didn't just ask our students How is your relationship with God changing your life? I never stopped there. Because we can walk up to any single person and we can say, hey, how has your relationship with God changed your life? And I think every single person in here would be able to give an answer to that, right? We would be able to start testifying on the spot, especially if we have been in church for any amount of time. The question that I always follow it up with is this. How has the gospel changed other people's lives through you? That's the harder question to answer, isn't it? We can all talk about how the gospel has changed our life and praise God for that. Like praise God for your testimony. But the follow-up question is, okay, cool. Now, how has the gospel changed others through you? Because the gospel isn't supposed to end at us. gospel can't stop at changing us. It has to change others through us as well. So I'm asking you, do you know the gospel? Has it changed you and does it motivate you? The gospel is the why behind the what. So like as Christians at Excel, as, as Christians in Excel youth, what we do is love God and love others, Right? Come on, give me an amen. Wake up a little bit. Amen? We love God and we love others. 
why we do it is because we are so moved by who God is and what God has done for us that we are compelled by that love to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everybody that we can through our words, by our actions, with our events, so that people in our lives can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When we understand the gospel, it inspires us to do incredible things for God. Like, like men and women throughout history have gone to great lengths to see the gospel spread and preached. I think of people like David Livingston. Whew. David Livingston single-handedly brought the gospel to the interior of Africa. And can I say, it wasn't comfortable for him at all. David Livingston actually showed up on the coastline of Africa. And this is where all of the missionaries would set up camp and wave their little flags around saying, we're doing a great thing for Jesus. And they would set up like these buildings in these communities. And David Livingston showed up to these communities where there were all these missionaries. And he's like, where are all the Africans? Where are they at? And, and you know what the reply was? Well, we built these churches and we built these communities and we're just waiting for them to come. And David Livingston, he's up on a balcony one night and he's with another missionary and he's looking out and he's seeing all of these fires and he goes, what are those? And he goes, well, those are the tribes. Those are the fires of the tribes that are out there. And he goes, I see the flames of a thousand tribes. They are calling to me, I must go. And so he walks out of that mission building and he puts a backpack on and he takes an assistant with him and he starts witnessing to cannibals and headhunters. He's getting bitten by snakes. He is getting like nasty, nasty diseases while he is out in the mission field because he is just eating horrible things. He is completely uncomfortable, but it doesn't matter to him. Why? Because he has to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have never, ever heard it before. This is how the gospel moved David Livingston. You know when David Livingston died, he died actually in the interior of Africa. And four men who he actually converted to Jesus Christ walked in bare feet and carried his body to the coast so that he could be buried with his people because the African tribe that he was reaching thought it a high honor to be buried with your people. So they walked him all the way back on bare feet. And when they were asked, why did you do this? Why did you bring him back? You just brought him back like hundreds and hundreds of miles. And they said, this is the way that we would treat a king. And anybody who would bring us such a beautiful message as the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be treated like a king. I, I think of guys like Nate Saint and Jim Elliott who died at the end of the spear from the Aka Indians in Ecuador. Jim Elliott literally said one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
I can't keep any of my material possessions. I'm actually not even going to be able to hold on to my comfort. So I have to go and reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what it has done to my life. I think of my wife's favorite missionary of all time, Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was an Irish missionary to India. And she was the one who established some of the first movements to rescue young people out of the human trafficking movement. She would go into the slums and she would save and rescue these children. She started orphanages in India. Now where she is buried in India, there's a fountain. And it doesn't say her name on it. It just says mother. Because of what she meant to so many of these kids. Amy did that to spread the gospel. And then you think of somebody like the Apostle Paul who had an incredible encounter with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary to ever live. The Apostle Paul endured insane hardships. Like insane hardships, family. Paul, who was whipped with 39 lashes five times. Think about that. Jesus was whipped with the lashes once before he was crucified. Paul endured that five different times. And he kept preaching the gospel. Paul was beaten with rods. Like rods. (laughs) Three times. And they say that this punishment lasted an hour every single time. That was the procedure to get a rod, a thick dowel rod that was five feet long and you would chain him up to a wall and he would just get hit in the back and hit in the legs and hit in the ribs. Why? Because you are going to stop talking about Jesus when you come into this place. Keep the name of Jesus out your mouth is what they always said to Paul. But Paul always went and... (laughs) But Paul still preached the gospel anyway. He still did it anyway. Paul was... He endured a stoning with rocks so bad that he was thought to be dead. He was dragged outside of the city gates and he woke up and he kept preaching the gospel. Paul was thrown into prison over and over and over again. And it wasn't the nice prison. It was the inner prison. Prisons back in the day were shaped like V's. And the political prisoners or the prisoners with influence would be at the very top. But prisoners like Paul were thrown at the very bottom. Do you know why they had them shaped like this? Because they didn't have plumbing back in the day. So there was a trough at the very bottom. So if you were going to the bathroom, number one or number two, it would flow downhill to where the prisoners were. Paul was at the very bottom where all of the defecation would flow. And then somebody would take a shovel and take the trench and throw it out once a month or once a week or whenever it filled up. And Paul said was said to be rejoicing and worshiping and spreading the gospel literally while he was taking everybody else's crap. That'll preach on its own, won't it? 
Like, Paul would do this, but, like, somebody talks crap about us, we're like, I ain't telling you about Jesus anymore. I'm running away from the church. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. Paul was also shipwrecked three times. Like, after the second time, I'm not getting on a boat anymore. I'm like, I'm walking. I'm taking a <laughs> I'm not going on a boat, right? If you survive two plane crashes, you know what I'm not doing? Flying anymore. I'm done. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. These are words that are penned by Paul literally while he was in prison. Literally while he is sitting down on a rock while there's probably like pee and poo like right there. And Paul is going to write these words. Think about the smell. Think about the weeping. Think about the agony. And here's the, here's the words that Paul is going to write. Listen to this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, but I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain more of Christ. From prison. Why would Paul endure all of that? In 2 Corinthians 5.14, he gives us the answer. He says, I'm compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. I'm compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. So Paul, while he was being beaten by rods, he's thinking of Jesus being nailed to a cross. So Paul, when he is swimming to the shore on the third shipwreck, and he gets to the island and his clothes are still wet and he's building a fire and he hasn't even dried off yet and he gets bitten by a poisonous snake. When that's happening, he's thinking about Jesus Christ and all that he did for Paul. It's what keeps him going. When I think about what Jesus did, it shows me what I have to do. Did you hear that? This is why it's important for you to know the gospel. Some of you don't know what Jesus did, so you don't know what you're supposed to do. Okay. It's like Paul, when you understand the gospel, a paradigm shift occurs, and the question in your heart changes from, how can I do all of this for the Lord? And the new question in your heart when you understand the gospel is, how can I not? How can I not serve the Lord? How can I not sacrifice my comfort? How can I not walk up to that individual and tell them about Jesus no matter what they might think of me? How can I not give my money to speed the light so that missionaries can go to the other side of the world and preach the gospel and I can make an impact in a place where I have never stepped foot? How can I not tell my parents about the love of Jesus Christ even though I'm going to get mocked and ridiculed again? How can I not live for Jesus? How can I not tell my friends that I'm not going to be partying with them anymore? Because listen, God has just done something in my heart and I have to live for something more and I have found satisfaction in something that this just doesn't provide any longer. In all I'm saying, and I hope you hear this major point, 
the heart and the vitality behind all that is happening and must be done for us as Christians must be fueled by an understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. And if you don't make that connection, you're going to have a harder time serving Jesus. You're going to have a harder time prioritizing being at church. Why? Because at some point, your obligation to religious duty is going to constrain you where love should be compelling you. You are going to have a harder time finding the courage to tell people about Jesus because you will be constrained by comfort instead of compelled by love. I've heard it quoted that courage is not the absence of fear, but the decision that something else is more important. And for us, for the Christian, that something is the glory of God by spreading the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Has it changed you? And does it motivate you? Amy Carmichael, we talked about her a little earlier. She's the missionary to India. And she's Irish, so she's a woman after my own heart. A little bit blunt, like that. She was interviewed by a reporter for a newspaper. And the reporter goes to Amy Carmichael, and he's like, Amy, you've seen crazy amounts of poverty in India. You've seen atrocities. You have seen horrors. You have seen terrible things happening to children. You've seen people literally dying of starvation. Amy, you have held babies in your hands while they took their last breath because they have been so malnourished. Amy, can you just talk to us a little bit about the saddest thing that you have ever seen in India so the people in, in America and, and in Great Britain and the United Kingdom could, can understand what's happening over in India. Amy, can you just give us a taste of what the saddest thing you've ever seen was? You want to, Amy's response was, without flinching, Amy answers, the saddest thing that I have ever seen is a nominal Christian. These are the people who allow Satan to buy up their opportunities to spread the gospel because they are too busy counting the cost. Amy has seen some of the craziest, most disgusting, most horrific, most heartbreaking, heart-wrenching things that you could possibly imagine in the slums of India. And yet she would say that the most heartbreaking thing that she's ever seen is a nominal Christian. And a nominal Christian is somebody who's just comfortable. It's just somebody who's lukewarm. A nominal Christian is just somebody who isn't, isn't ready to pay the cost that Jesus has asked us to pursue. And, and you want to know what's really crazy about a nominal Christian is that they don't understand that obedience is always better than sacrifice. That if I just obey the Lord, he will, he will sustain me. 
And if I just obey the Lord, then I can have his presence, which is so much better than anything that this world could ever provide. Hear my heart. I I want you to hear the gospel so you can be changed by the God of the gospel and be motivated to spread the gospel. So without wasting any more time, I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And this is how we're going to end the night. My agenda here tonight is simple. I'm just going to preach the gospel to you now. One of my prayers has been that you would hear the gospel with fresh ears tonight. Maybe you've heard the gospel a hundred times, but I just, the word of God is living and active, which means that you could hear a verse a thousand times, but on 1001, something just clicks and it's different and applies to you in this situation. There's no other book that's like this. There's no other book that's Holy Spirit inspired and God breathed that can actually shift and change spiritually and meet you in your current situation. The Bible is always relevant. It is always ready for you. You just need to read it and have faith. So here it is. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is what I have always lovingly referred to as the pocket gospel. The book of Romans is like a long form of the gospel. The book of Romans is a beautiful, multi-chapter presentation of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, 10 verses, is like cliff notes. <laughs> How many of you have ever had a book report, and you're like, no, cliff notes. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the book report Cliff Notes version of all of Romans. So it's helpful to memorize all of these verses. And I want you to notice that as we're reading this, that before Paul tells you how good the good news is, he's going to tell you how bad the bad news is first. Like Paul is always going to be that guy. Don't invite him to the barbecue. He's really depressing at first. Like whenever Paul presents the good news, he always starts with the bad news because Paul rightly understands that unless he fully explains the consequences of sin, it's going to be very difficult for the church to appreciate the gift of salvation. Like don't get me wrong, you cannot out-preach grace. But at some point you have to know what you're being saved from. So let's start in the first part of Ephesians 2 with the bad news. Here's the bad news, Ephesians 2, 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us, somebody say all of us, used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Your temptations, the things you want to do, the things your flesh pulls you to. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. And just like everyone else, here's four quick points to show you how bad the bad news is. Point number one. This is bad news. You are dead in your sin. And if you are a sinner, you are dead in your sin. 
It takes Paul four words to get to the point. Once you were dead. You are not sick in your sin. You are not lost in your sin. I love how we are saying lost all the time. People ain't lost. They're dead. They're dead. They are walking dead people. That's how serious it is. You are not buried in your sin. You are dead in your sin. If you are merely sick in your sin, it would suggest that you have the ability within yourself to do something about it. I'll just go to the doctor. I'll just take some meds. I'll just listen to an influencer on social media and they're going to put me in a good mood again. Tell me what I need in my life. I'll just get it justified. I'll just rest. I'll just pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can get myself over this. No, you can't. There is no physical solution to a spiritual problem. There is no temporary fix to an eternal issue, students. There is no self-help book. There is nothing that you can do about it in your own power. Why? Because you're dead. There is no doctor. You have already coded. You aren't bringing yourself back because you're dead. And the only way you are coming back, listen, is if somebody other than you steps in and has power over sin, hell, death, and the grave and resurrects you from your state of death. Who is that? Jesus. Number two, here's some more bad news. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. The commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. The devil is real. There is a very real enemy of your soul. He is Satan, the accuser, the one who was cast out of heaven because he rebelled against God, because he decided he wanted to worship himself instead of giving glory to God. He is now the enemy of your soul. He prowls around to and fro like a lion seeking whom he can devour. There is very real evil in this world and there is a personal presence behind that evil and it is Satan. He is not some idiot in a red leotard with a pointy tail and a pitchfork. The Bible says that he appears as an angel of light. And that is why it is so important for you to be in your Bible. Because if you are in your Bible, you gain wisdom and knowledge and discernment. And discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. In the Bible, the devil will come to you with a whole lot of almost right. He did it with Jesus when he was tempting him in the desert. He quoted scripture to him. It was almost right, and that's why Jesus rebuked him with proper context and proper scripture. I'm going to be done. Here's why it is bad news for us to be obeying the devil. Have you ever played follow the leader like when you were a kid? Right? 
That was kind of fun, right? Were you especially like if you had like a cool kindergarten class and you had like stuff, right? You would go over the over the chair, under the table, and you had to follow the leader wherever the leader went. You would go. We're following the leader, right? Like, and we're just having a great time. Okay. Okay. So like. It's a bad news for us to be obeying and following the devil because if you keep following the devil, eventually you are going to get where he is going. That's not good because the devil is going to be cast into an eternal hell where he will be in torment forever. And if we are dead in our sins, then we share that destination. Why? Because God is just. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to pull this back. Some of y'all are like, okay, bro, you're killing me here. You're killing me here. And some people are like, well, Pastor Chris, isn't it hateful to tell people that they are destined for hell if they don't submit to God? No, I believe it's actually hateful not to tell them. So there's this noted atheist by the name of Penn Jillette. Have you guys ever heard of Penn and Teller? Like, I don't condone you, like, watching them or following them. Right? But, but Penn Jillette tells the story about how he did a show, and then after a show, a man of God came up to him and handed him a Bible with a note in it and said, Penn, I'm praying for you. And Penn Jillette actually said, man, you know I respected that person for actually standing up for their faith and telling me? Penn Jillette actually said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that there's an eternal hell and not try and do everything in your power to rescue them? An atheist! A militant atheist, by the way. But he had respect for somebody who had the courage to at least make an attempt for his soul. Okay. You know, my, my little girl Chloe is here. And when she was really little, she was just, I mean, she was in everything. I mean, she was just like in everything, everywhere. She would climb fences. One, I, I walked into the kitchen, and she was on top of our fridge eating cookies. And I was like, how in the name of Jesus did you even get up there? You're three, right? Like, I mean, she's like Monkey Joes, man. I mean, like she was everywhere. I remember once I had the fire on the stove, and it was heating a pot of water because I was making some noodles, you know, whatever. And so, like, you know, my daughter saw the fire, and she's like, ooh, pretty. And she went to reach for the fire. And you want to know what I did? I ninja chopped her hand. I was like, ah! I mean, I smacked that thing. Why? Because as her father, I loved her. It's okay for me to cause a little bit of pain in my child's life trying to protect them in order to keep her from enduring horrible pain or a burn. And I just don't understand why we don't get that concept, why we don't speak out, why we don't call things out. Number three, nobody is exempt. Verse three starts out, all of us live that way. Who? All of us. There are some of you in here tonight and you think this bad news doesn't apply to you because you're a good person. No, you're not. (laughs) You're like, bro, you are a horrible preacher. Please stop. Okay, no, stay with me. I swear to you. Are you saying that I'm not a good person? No, the Bible does. (laughs) Jesus does. There's like the story of a rich young ruler, and he walks up to Jesus, and he's like, good teacher. And Jesus is like, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. So don't call me good unless you're ready to call me God. 
And he's like, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus is like, well, do you follow the Ten Commandments? And he's like, yeah, I have since my birth. And he goes, okay, cool. Here's the only thing that I need you to do because you're lacking one thing. You're super rich. I need you to sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the, and the Bible says that the rich young ruler's face darkened like a storm was approaching, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. The rich young ruler was like trying to flex a little bit because the question that he was really asking Jesus is this, how can I save myself? And Jesus is like, you can't. You can't. You have to follow me. In the book of Isaiah, it says that our righteousness on our best day is like filthy rags. Like, I mean, like, think about righteousness. I'm doing all the right things, man. I woke up, I cleaned my room, I'm, I did my homework, I got an A plus on that exam, and I even hate science, but I got an A on that exam. Like, I suffered. I helped that little old lady across the street. I got cut off in traffic, and I didn't flip this person off. Like, I mean, like, I am rolling. I am doing so good today. Filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you know what filthy rags means? It was rags that were used to wipe up blood. I'm not going to get more specific than that. But those rags, if you touched them, those rags would be considered ceremonially unclean. Like you wouldn't be able to even approach the temple until you went through a cleansing process. And, and the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that all of our righteousness, all of our piety, all of our actions, like even on our best day, filthy rags compared to the glory of God. Woo! Okay, 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 okay. So like, here's the thing. Being good is so subjective. Being a good person is so subjective, isn't it? Like calling yourself good is so easy because you always find somebody who is awful to compare yourself with. Like ironically... So you can say, don't judge me. (laughs) I think it's really funny that your culture is like, don't judge me, but you judge other people to make yourself feel good about yourself. That's called hypocrisy. Like as parents, I've talked to a lot of parents that have experienced this. And I know a lot of you are parents with young kids, but like, like it's funny because even in youth ministry, I've dealt with this. Like you would confront a kid and be like, listen, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. And they're like, ugh. I'm not like that kid over there. That kid's smoking pot like every day. I'm not like smoking pot. And then like you confront the kid that's smoking pot. And it's like, I'm not like a murderer. And I kill. You're always looking for somebody worse than you to make yourself feel better about yourself. Why? Because being good is so subjective. Right? It's foolishness. If a thief is in the room and then a murderer walks into the same room, the thief isn't magically innocent all of a sudden. If the thief gets caught and arrested, he is not going to be successful defending himself in the court of law by saying, well, that guy's a murderer. The judge is going to be like, yeah, but you broke the law too. And here's the thing, like all of us are lawbreakers. You can't look at bigger lawbreakers and be like, well, look at them. Because when we compare our goodness to the glory of God, we fall magnificently and monumentally short Oh, my goodness. It's foolish to compare ourselves to others for good or bad because others aren't the standard. God is the standard. The number one reason for church hurt is that we have fixed our eyes on the wrong thing. We are looking at people instead of Jesus as the standard. 
People are not the standard. So you got to stop comparing the, sta- the comparing the comparing the standard of the church to the standard of a of a of an imperfect person. Your pastors are going to fail. There are people in the church that are going to mess up, but Jesus never fails. Who are you running from? You are running from a man who is imperfect, and you are throwing the perfect Jesus in with it? That's foolish. Because when we compare ourselves to God, we just mess up. And finally, four, by our very nature, we are subject to God's anger. The rest of my messages won't be this long, I promise. Other versions of this verse say that we are children of wrath. That's often a very misunderstood phrase in the Bible. A lot of times when people see the, the, the term children of wrath, it means like, oh, well, like we're rebellious and we're like in a world that's full of wrath and anger and, and it's messed up. No, children of wrath means we're all sinners and because we're all sinners, we're all subject to the wrath of God. Because God hates sin. It's like just before Paul gets to the good news, he actually takes the bad news and makes it terrifying news. Track with me. Think about what it means to know that if you are not in Christ, that the inheritance for your glad rebellion is the wrath of God. And that's terrifying. That the God who spoke the universe into existence, think about that. Did you know that the biggest star in our solar system, in the known universe that we have seen, is this star. It's called V.Y. Canis Majoris. That star can fit one billion of our suns into it. Of our suns. One, one billion with a B. Into this one star. The same God who spoke that into existence. It is said that he is storing up wrath for sin and wickedness. You want to know why? Because he's just. Because he's just. The Bible says that on the day of the Lord, the wicked will flee to the mountains, but the mountains will flee from God. I lived in Colorado. Have you guys ever seen a mountain? It's nuts. Like, they're huge. The Bible says in the day of the Lord, when he returns, the wicked will flee to the mountains, but the mountains are going to be like, oh, no, here he comes. Mountains. That's the bad news. In three short verses, Paul breaks it down that we are all sinners. There is nothing that we can do in our own efforts to change that because it's in our very nature. And because of our sin, we are deserving of God's judgment. If nothing changes, we are destined for hell. Thanks, Paul. That's the bad news. But listen, Paul doesn't leave us there. And I'm not going to leave us there either because God doesn't leave us there. I told you all that so I could get to the good stuff. You know, as a father... Whenever my children are in danger and they cry out for me, I recognize their voice and I run to them. I respond to them. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 15, in their desperation, my children cried out to me and I responded to them. We're in a desperate place if we do not have Jesus in our life. I am not trying to say that to scare you. I'm not trying to say that to manipulate you. I'm just just telling you what the stakes are here, family. That in our desperation, that if we cry out to Jesus, he will respond to us. 
Remember I told you that before we can understand how good the good news is, we have to know how bad the bad news is. And now after hearing how bad the bad news is, I want you to listen. I want you to really listen to these next six verses as I read them aloud to you. And it's my prayer that you hear these next six verses with fresh ears so you can take in the stunning grace of God. You heard the bad news. Now listen to the good news. Can everybody in here really quickly close their eyes and listen as hard as you can with your ears? I want you to listen as though these words are being spoken directly to you personally. You can even do this. Wherever I say us, you can say me. Wherever I say we, you can say me. Wherever I say our, you can say my. Make it personal if you need to. Listen to this. You heard the bad news. Here's the good. But God, who is so rich in mercy... And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms Because we are united with Christ Jesus. So now God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed And you cannot take credit for this. It's a free gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done. So none of us can boast about it. You cannot earn it. For we are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So now that we can do the things that he planned for us long ago, the worship team can make their way up. Everybody look at me. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. There's this word in theology that I want to teach you tonight. It's called imputation. Imputation. How many of you have heard of amputation? Amputation. Amputation is when something that is on you, that belongs to you, is cut off and taken away. Sometimes when you have a disease in your body and an infection takes place, uh, you have to have your arm or your leg amputated. Sometimes it's because of a wound. Sometimes there are people who suffer with diabetes and there's this necrotic uh, skin disease that sets in and your foot has to be cut off. It's an amputation. Imputation 
is when something that never belonged to you in the first place is placed on you as though it is yours. I'm teaching you the word imputation because what happens at the moment of salvation when you say, Jesus, I submit my life to you tonight, is that Jesus takes his righteousness and he imputes it onto you. Jesus, who lived a sinless life, who paid the price that none of us could ever pay, and who died a death that we could never die, rose again from the grave, perfect, sinless, and he did it, why? So he could make us the righteousness of God. So he could place his righteousness on you. Do you want to know why Jesus does this? So that God, who is just, God, who must punish sin because he is perfect. And if God does not punish sin, he is not God and he is not just, right? Can we all rationalize this? God must punish sin. You are all sinners. God must punish you. But Jesus loved you. God loved you so much that he sent his son to be a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, to wash away all of your sins and to impute righteousness onto you. So now, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, he doesn't see your sin, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Why? You ever sing reckless love? It's like, I didn't earn it don't deserve it. That's what we're talking about. It gets more stunning. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ. And he seated us with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Because now we're united with Jesus. So God can now point to us God can point to you. God can point to me in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Listen, this is so powerful. There are those of you who are in here tonight and you feel like because of your sin and your brokenness and your shame that you aren't valuable and you aren't useful to God. And I want you to underline this verse. I want you to highlight it. I want you to remember it. I want you to preach it to yourself every day because I want you to hear tonight that not only are you valuable, but you are so valuable that when God wants to show off how beautiful redemption looks, he's going to point to you. He's going to point to me. You are not a mess in the eyes of God. He calls you his masterpiece. Well, how are you considered a masterpiece? Because your brokenness has beauty in it. He's going to take the pieces of your broken life and he's going to put them together and he's going to shine through them. 
You know, some of the most beautiful pieces of art are stained glass windows. And there are some of you, when you are looking at your life, and it's shattered, and it's broken, and it's a mess. But if you give your life to Jesus, he will take the broken pieces of your life, and he will put it together, and he will create a piece of artwork out of it. It's going to be different colors. It's going to be stained up. But when the light of Jesus shines through it, future generations are going to look at you, and they're going to say, if God can redeem him, God can redeem me. God can use her story. God can use my story. And God is going to pick you up. And he's going to show you off to the world. And he's going to be like, look at my child. I did it for them. I can do it for you. You understand how beautiful and how valuable and how worth it you are to Jesus. Oh my gosh. Some of you come from broken homes. And you're like, I don't even think I even understand what it looks like to be loved by an authority figure. I don't even know what it feels like to be loved by parents or a dad. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to find the one who has never left you, who has never forsaken you, who is so proud of you. in his arms and spin you around and tell you how much he loves you. God saved you by his grace when you believed. There's nothing you get to take credit for. It's just a gift. Can everybody stand in this place? So some of you are in here tonight and you're like, what does this have to do with my life? Everything. Everything. How can you hear the news you just heard and not do everything to share it, not do everything to receive it. How can you receive such a stunning and undeserved gift and not tell everybody that you can? Has the gospel changed you? Because excel, if the gospel hasn't changed you, then it will be difficult for the gospel to change the world through you. Jesus, will you be with these students tonight? Will you help them understand the free gift of salvation that exists in this place? Your word says that your arms are not too short to save anybody. That your ear is not too deaf to hear the cries of anybody. I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me that there is somebody that is in this place and you feel invisible to God. Because you have felt invisible in your family and you have felt invisible in this youth ministry. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your story is. But God sees you. God has heard your cries. He has seen you crying your eyes out at night. And he wants to let you know that he loves you. And that he's proud of you. And that he believes in the high calling that he has placed on your life. You've been doubting yourself for too long. It's time to step out in faith. Maybe you're in here today. And this is the first time you've really ever heard or understood the gospel. As you are sitting in your seat, hearing about this incredible news, you may have wondered, how can I receive the incredible free gift of salvation? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Now hear this. We don't believe that there is any magic in this saying. 
It's not just about saying Jesus is Lord. What you are doing today is making a declaration that Jesus is your Lord. He's your master. He's the boss. Why? Because his ways are higher than your ways. He's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. And he raised from the dead. So I'm on that guy's team. I'm going to do what he says because he's the creator. And I'm done going to creation, listening to what I'm supposed to do with my life. You are making an actionable statement that with God's help and strength and grace, I'm committing to turn away from my sin and live for God forever. The second response is for those of you who heard the gospel with fresh ears tonight. You are reminded that the gospel isn't supposed to stop at changing you. It's also supposed to change others through you as well. Maybe you haven't been doing the best with that. And you've been making some excuses in light of the responsibility you have to love the lost and spread the gospel. I'm going to invite you to come to the front as well and repent of that and meet the God of grace who will compel you to get back on track. So response number one, I I need to respond to the gospel. Maybe you have responded to the gospel in your life but you are now walking in sin. The Bible says to repent. Repentance means to turn away from your sin. So if this water bottle is sin, repentance is putting it down at the altar. God, I give it to you, and I'm going to walk away from it and not pick it back up again. There might be some of you that are in this place, and you need to respond by repenting. There may be some of you in this place and you need to respond by receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior for the first time. There may be some of you that are in here tonight and the gospel just wrecked you and you're like, oh, that's extravagant. I need to tell everybody, Jesus, I need the courage and I need the faith to be a witness because Jesus, you're worthy of it all. If that's you in this place, I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. You can either come up And you can start to pray. You kneel at this altar. You can turn around. You can kneel at your chairs. But right now, I want you to start praying out to God. Come forward right now if you need to respond in any of those ways. Somebody take the first step.